Hey, Blake from Launch Notes here. Thanks so much for checking out the Launch Notes podcast. Today's podcast features a recording of a recent AMA we hosted in the Launch Awesome community. To join a future AMA, including getting your own questions answered by industry experts, join our free Launch Awesome Slack community. You'll find a link in the show notes or just do a quick search for Launch Awesome and it'll come right up. In the meantime, enjoy this episode. Welcome everyone. Thanks for coming today. I'm Blake from Launch Notes, joined by Matt Hodges. Matt's the head of product marketing craft at Atlassian. He's recently been a marketing leader at Loom and Intercom. Really excited for this conversation. Matt and I are going to be talking about a lot of things, but you know, chiefly how product-led growth fails without great marketing. Really important topic, really relevant topic for a lot of us I know. Matt, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Blake. And thanks to everyone joining from around the world, especially those of you in, in Europe where it's really, really, really light. No pressure on me to keep you awake. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, let's dive in. Give us a quick tour of your background because you've been at some really cool companies. Sure, yeah. So I guess my, my career in tech and specifically in, in marketing started back in 2008. I was working for a Apple store at the time. This was in Sydney before the days of Apple retail in Australia. I was working for a little reseller selling Apple computers. And my boss decided to sell the company and to a bigger chain. And at that point, I had just been introduced to Mike and Scott from Alassian, two co-founders, co-CEOs. They did the same university degree as me, actually, just a, a few years ahead, and they dropped out. <laughs> and that's how Alassian was born. Um, so I got introduced to them and ended up joining what was called the pre-sales team at the time. And this was pre-cloud to to use any of Alassian's products, you would download a package, open up the command line, install it, and then get an evaluation license key. And I would help folks evaluate Confluence. That was the product I was focused on. Long story short, Alassian ended up moving me to San Francisco in 2009 when they were investing in marketing. Jay Simons had just joined as VP of marketing. He ended up becoming the president for a good 10, 11 years. And that's how I kind of got my first role in, in product marketing. Uh, and I, I ended up running product marketing for Atlassian's collaboration business, Confluence, HipChat, and all the Confluence add-ons. It's about a $40 million business at that point in 2014. Got, got itchy feet. Atlassian had gone from 100 employees to almost 1,000, you know, 200 plus million in, in revenue in, that, in those six years. And I ended up joining a really small San Francisco-based but Irish roots company called Intercom. They had 50 employees, just raised a series B. They had hit 1 million in annual recurring revenue and were investing in marketing and sales for the first time. And so I joined as the first marketer, spent five and a half years building out the, the marketing team at Intercom. And then when I left it in 2019, company was about 700 employees, 120 or 140 million annual recurring revenue, something like that. So one to 140 in five and a half years. So pretty insane growth. And then my wife and I decided to move back to Australia. And with that move, this was all pre-COVID. Intercom was not a remote friendly company. And I decided to, to leave so that we could move back here to Australia. And serendipitously landed a job at Loom through a connection through a, a early Intercom employee. And so uh, I joined as Loom's head of marketing for the first three months in San Francisco, then moved back here, ran marketing and product for a good eight to nine, eight to nine months, and then burnt myself out. You know, life happens, COVID happened. We had a second child, international move. It all caught up with me. Needed to take some time off. Took three months off, then ended up consulting 
and became a Boomerang employee. Atlassian was one of my clients for a good five to six months, and they eventually asked me to come back full-time. And so I rejoined full-time in February of this year. And Atlassian is a very different company to, to when I left it in 2014 now. It's 8,000 8, odd employees and massive, but also a lot is still the same. A lot of the values remain. And I know, like, you know, Atlassian alum yourself, you, you probably know exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. I was probably there the years you were gone and then I left and you came back. So collectively, <laughs> I think we can piece together the whole, <laughs> the whole history of it last exactly. bet between us. We've been there the whole time. You certainly more than me. Um, yeah. Awesome experience. And I know you've seen a ton of growth and change at those different companies and got to hold some exciting roles. Maybe let's start with going back to your sort of first leg at Atlassian. Can you set the scene a little more around you know, the stage the company was at, how many people, what, you know, what the business looked like and what you were, what you were brought in to do, what the rest of the marketing, if there was much of a marketing organization looked like at the time, just sort of set the stage about like what Atlassian was like when you first arrived. Yeah. So when I first arrived in Sydney, I mentioned it was, you know, this was 2008. So pre, pre-cloud, there was no real, you know, there was nothing the word SaaS did not exist at that point. Salesforce kind of came on the scene in 2009 and, and that's when it really started to kick things off. But everything was behind the firewall or on-prem and Atlassian was pioneering the product-led growth movement. They were you know, the only enterprise software company that you could try the product for free without having to talk to anyone. But if you want to talk to someone, you would speak to someone like me and I was not comped, I was not a salesperson, but I was mm-hmm. purely there to help. And so I can, you know, in today's world, Kind of say I'm, I was a bit of a blend of technical sales and customer success. Mm-hmm. Um, when Jay joined and hired Daniel Freeman, Daniel Freeman was VP of product marketing in 2000 and late 2008. They started to build out the marketing team in San Francisco. So us in Sydney-based company, that's where its headquarters is. Most of the product and engineering teams were all, were, were all in Sydney and, and still are to this day, although they do have big presence in India and and in Palo Alto now or Menlo Park. But Jay and Daniels really started to invest in building out marketing. And, you know, to give a sense for like how long ago this was, one of the first roles I had within marketing was focused on conversion of evaluators. So, you know, you'd, you'd install Confluence or Jira, you'd have it running on a machine under your desk, you would have a 30-day trial. And in that window, it was my job to help you buy and get set up like in an automated fashion because you know last time was all, jay was all about how can we not throw people at a problem how can we learn through people and then automate as much as we can and so i was using exact target or i think we built our own homegrown drip email solution because there wasn't really anything on the market at the time and did the trip typical you know day one day three day five day seven emails and so that's what i was doing originally and then that role then evolved into leading marketing for Atlassian's collaboration business. So actually setting the go-to-market strategy, partnering with products, we had a collective goal that was based on a number of evaluators or leads, and then a revenue target to hit. And between myself and the head of product, we would put together a strategy in order to hit those goals. And so Atlassian had a model where PMM was really the quarterback and the heart of go-to-market. And so we owned the budget in PMM. And I would then partner with the respective heads of the different disciplines and market in order to execute on that strategy that we had aligned on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a ton of great, a ton of great context and advice there. 
I especially love, I mean, I love that quote around the, the insight around how can we not throw people at a problem? And I know you all, you know, kind of led by Jay kind of lived and breathed that, you know, especially in the early days of Atlassian really astounding too. Like if you know, Jay and know his background and he is a phenomenal leader, he has a, you know, pretty traditional enterprise sales background. So he's walked the walk of enterprise sales. And like, I always gave him big credit for sort of zigging when everyone else zagged and saying like, I'm not going to do the the typical sales leader thing, which is like load up three, four floors of this office building with, with sales reps. Like we're going to you know, lead into automation, you know, doing things on the website, yeah. like kind of thinking differently. Like that's such a, you know, that's such a great lesson there. Yeah. And I think I, I also the pricing model at the time yeah. and still to this day, for most of Atlassian's products was, you know, it was a volume based play, you know, it was, our products were incredibly cheap compared to the alternatives in the competition. Mm-hmm. And when you're, when you have that strategy, it doesn't make sense to have comp salespeople trying to, to sell and hit quotas. Yeah. Um, and so I think obviously the, the strategy in and of itself was one that lended itself well to yeah. not needing to invest in sales at that point in time, obviously that's changed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of folks, and you know, especially if you haven't, you know, worked in B2B or worked in, you know, SaaS for very long, like, you know, younger people might not realize like just how sort of radical and new of an idea it was that like, we're going to sell this enterprise, you know, software for the workplace and you're going to try and, you know, learn about it and buy it on the website. Like just do that. Like you're buying a video game or a book from Amazon or something like that. And I know there were a couple, like, it seems like a couple different factors kind of coming together that created that. Can you, share a little bit about like why Atlassian chose to go that way and actually let people like buy on the website. Cause that was like pretty radical at the time. Yeah. I'd say one of the biggest, I guess, things happening at that point in time as well was I guess the, the web browser was maturing and the, like there are a lot more things happening in the browser. And so I share that because all of Atlassian's products you use through the browser, which mm-hmm. was a, a totally new concept to a lot of people at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was the perfect perfect storm. Is that the right right analogy here? Uh, sure. You know, new business model, the, you know, the technology stack maturing, more people getting comfortable with doing things in the browser, whether that was using software and using Atlassian's products or actually buying software as opposed to, you know, picking up the phone and, and talking to someone. And so I think it was a confluence of, of those factors, mm-hmm. no pun intended, because I did work on confluence products. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a combination of right, right time, right place, right strategy and right product mm-hmm. set. Yeah, yeah. And I think right, right buyer and audience too. I mean, those early days, it was largely other software developers, you know, buying yes. these products and the, you know, the audience and person you're selling to has like a major impact on like, what's their like tolerance for friction basically with like getting set up, like what's their aptitude that the buyer brings to the table if they're going to have to download and install something without actually talking to someone. Absolutely. The the fit with buyer there seems like that was a really important factor at the time too. Yes, definitely. Maybe let's let's move to uh, let's move to intercom a little bit because I'm sure we could talk at Lassian all day, but I know you you did some really exciting things with intercom and maybe maybe sort of set the scene with you know where intercom was at when you came in and what were the sort of immediate functions priorities projects you kind of sunk your teeth into once you got in the door at intercom. 
Yeah. So Intercom, so Dublin-based company, but official headquarters in San Francisco. So all of r and was in Dublin, in Ireland, and still is to this day, primarily. And then there was a small kind of like office in San Francisco where you had Owen Cave, who was co-founder and CEO, now back as CEO, actually. And then a few go-to-market folks. And so I was the first marketing hire at Intercom. There were 50 employees at the time. Primarily, all of those people were in R&D, which to me is a really strong signal of a, a good company to join as a marketer because there's so much investment in product. And when you have a solid product, your job as a marketer is much easier. That's and fine. so first marketer joined alongside the first sales hire at the time, which was Russ Tau. And what else would I say in terms of setting the scene? You know, million in annual recurring revenue, really good traction, strong signal of product market fit, no real, you know, proactive investment in, in marketing. And I say, quote unquote, marketing, because, you know, Des and, and Paul Adams in particular were doing a lot of marketing. They just didn't have marketing in their title in terms of the content that they were writing to reach the right audiences to, you know, bring more people in the front door, so to speak. So mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of the, the scene for where the company is at in terms of my priorities when I joined. Uh, I guess a bit, bit of advice for anyone who, you know, moves into a new role at some point in their future is, Always be very clear on the expectations of your role when you join a new company, especially one where they're hiring a function that they've never had before. And so I spent a lot of time talking to Owen and Des before joining, making sure we were aligned on what they actually wanted me to do. So they never had mm-hmm. a marketer before, let alone a product marketer. That was my, I was director of product marketing when I joined. And so we were really clear on what are the three things that would make me successful in this role and be, you know, valuable for Intercom in my first six months. And those three things were redo the website. <laughs> so figure out yeah. how to better position and message ourselves based on our, you know, ambition as a company and as a product. And so that was number one. The second mm-hmm. was to start to do product launches. So, you know, in, Intercom has a world-class product team, PMs, designers, researchers, engineers, the full shebang, and they were shipping fantastic product. They just didn't have anyone thinking strategically about how to get the most out of those product releases. And so putting in a system and a framework for how we think about announcing product and and go to market in general. And then the third thing was to build out a marketing team. You know, who do we need to hire? What what types of roles do we need to hire and why in order to execute against the strategy? Mm -hmm. I'll kind of pause there for a second if you want to dive deeper into any one of those. Yeah, I do want to actually dive deeper into those. But maybe first, just to underscore the point you made around setting expectations when you go into new, a new role is so important. And yeah, once you get in the role, you're going to have all sorts of opportunities to sort of like, you know, work on KPIs and have your metrics and have like different things that become like, you know, priorities, milestones, projects, initiatives, all that kind of, you know, will be in flux and develop the first year. You really get an opportunity before you come in when you're interviewing just to get a more holistic sense of like, what do these, what do these folks I'll be working with, like think success is going to look like. And I always, you know, when I'm in that position, I always ask, ask the person to kind of paint a picture a year out, let's say, you know, things are like a roaring success with, you know, with the person in this role, what does that look like, look like to you? Cause then that person starts to, to paint a picture of like what they dream will get done with that person in the role. And that can just like, be such a strong signal that, you know, you, you will complement with all the metrics and, you know, KPIs down the road, but you might not really ever get a question to sort of like an, an opportunity to ask at that altitude, you know, that question, 
once you're like boots yeah. on the ground doing the job. So it's a really, really great opportunity. And I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. And I think it's especially important for product marketers because as we, yeah. you know, hopefully you'll know product marketing is a, you know, very in demand role at companies and or function that companies are investing in for the very first time at the moment. Mm -hmm. I think it, it's kind of been that way for the last eight to 10 months kind of like the penny dropped in a lot of companies are like, we need product marketing. And I bring that up because a lot of these companies, and I spoke to a lot of them when I was consulting, don't know what product marketing is, or they have a yeah. very specific idea of what they want it to be. And that's where it's really important. You get clear on, you know, I always, when I, whenever I was asked for advice on, Hey, we, we want to hire a product marketer, who should we be hiring and what we should, should we be looking for? The first question mm -hmm. I asked was what does product marketing mean to you? Um, mm -hmm. and then from there I would ask, well, what, what are some of the challenges you're having with your business or on the flip side, what are some of the opportunities that you want to double down and take advantage of? And that then helps shape the role yeah. and because there are many flavors of product marketing and, you know, we all wear many hats. And so those are the questions I usually ask, like, what problems do you have that you think someone can come in and help you address and fix? And what opportunities do you want to double down on? And then there, from there, you kind of shape the role. Yeah. Yeah. Great point because, you know, there's so much scope and potential to that role that, you know, it could go many, many ways in terms of like what yes. that person actually does. So yeah, it's great to level set on that. But yeah, maybe circling back to the, to those intercom projects, I'd love to dive in and maybe the website that you mentioned first is a good, is a good sort of little mini case study we can zoom in on here. Yeah. Because especially for B2B SaaS, like the website, it's like the front door of your business. It's the first thing that buyers are going to look for, look at when they're sort of sizing up. And it's a great sort of platform for product marketing, right? It's like where you're the best of your product marketing sort of should live. So when folks are diving into a website, whether it's, you know, a big redesign or launching for the first time or tweaking it, like what were some of the approaches you took, you know? frameworks, you know, ways of, ways of attacking that, that, that seem to be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So I think so many different ways you can approach these projects. We kind of did it in two phases, not that it was ever planned to be done in two phases. So I'll speak about kind of mm -hmm. the first step we took on redesigning the homepage effectively intercom had, you know, there were a few sub pages, but there was a homepage, a pricing page and a contact us page or an about us page. And so we started with the homepage, the most important page on your site, the front door of your business. And I ran a little survey amongst our existing customers, put together like 10 or 11 questions to better understand from them, you know, what they were using in a comp or what problems they had, they had sought to solve with it. And then a key question was, how would you describe Intercom to a, a coworker? Like, how would you describe it, what it is? And then how would you describe what value it provides to you? And so I, I did that survey, got like a couple hundred respondents. And from that drew a lot of insight into how to think about talking and speaking about the product based on what our customers were saying. And then obviously injected a lot of intuition. I think, you know, you shouldn't base everything on research and, you know, what customers tell you, you need to obviously use some intuition based on, you know, your own understanding of the market and what opportunities exist to differentiate, differentiate yourself based on where your product is today, but also where you want it to be in the future. So that was kind of step one, redesign the homepage, both visually and then from a positioning point of view. I think it was the headline, the original headline was simple, personal chat for businesses and your customers. And I remembered when I read that before I joined, when I was trying to understand who is this company that, that I might want to work with, 
And I read the headline and I thought it was chat software. Like I thought it was literally like hip chat. And so mm. I think there was a lot of opportunities to refine how we positioned ourselves. And where we ended up was a new headline at that point in time was an entirely new way to connect with your customers. Mm. Mm. And so that was kind of phase one. And then phase two was a lot more in depth and it wasn't just about the marketing side. It was more about our strategy as a company. We actually worked with a firm based out, a consulting firm based out of Detroit called the Rewired Group. I've done a talk on this. It's called Marketing the Job to be Done. It's on YouTube. If you want to go deep on it, do check out that talk. It's like only 10 minutes. You can watch it at one and a half X, get through it in like seven minutes. And so I won't go super in depth, but we worked with this firm, the Rewired Group, who are specialists in the jobs to be done methodology, which is the methodology that Intercom uses to build product. And out of that engagement, we came out with an understanding of the four jobs that people were hiring Intercom for at that time. The sync, you know, obviously we produce these job cards, which go super in depth and tell you what the job statement is, you know, what it's more about, what it's less about, who these people are that are looking to hire a product for this job. So super in depth, but the, the four jobs were in one word, each observe, learn, engage, and support. So we had those, that understanding of the four jobs. And then we use that to inform, all right, how do we position the the company and the product, how do we price and package the product based on that? And then also what does our roadmap look like for each of those four jobs and where do we want to invest more versus invest less? Mm -hmm. And so we use that understanding from a marketing perspective to re-architect the marketing site, you know, with those four jobs being use cases that we developed landing pages for and pathways into people signing up for Intercom. Yeah. That's, that's such a great, like quick case study on, leveling up, you know, and, and kind of like getting a company ready for PLG, frankly, like, and a lot of folks, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to not appreciate the importance of like the positioning or the website or the homepage and all that, but really like the era before the sort of peer sales, sales led era before things like, you know, before the internet made things like this possible and efficient you like literally sales led, like the first time someone might hear about your company was from, you know, a sales rep or a, a phone call or at an industry event or something. So, you know, the website could be kind of an afterthought or like maybe a customer would find their way there, but, you know, likely not. And certainly likely not like the core thing that's going to like make or break their decision to get the product. But when you create a PLG motion and you have folks evaluating through the website, like, such a missed opportunity to not make that as, you know, as powerful as onto your homepage. Yeah. It's the most important. It's the front door to your business, right? If you're a, if you're a digital 100%. business. And I think what I thought was probably the most critical part of that effort at the time is that it wasn't led by marketing. It wasn't led by product. It was really Des and Owen as co-founders, CEO and chief strategy officer, bringing together marketing. So me, product, Paul Adams, who's chief product officer there now, and Sean Townsend, who is our director of research for a long time. And so it was, it was really a marriage of go-to-market and product strategy versus just thinking about it from a marketing lens or a product lens. And when you have that, and you know, Des would always tell me, you know, we need to build what we sell and sell what we build. Like it starts with bringing those two groups together. A hundred percent. What do you think? What's the biggest mistake people make with marketing sites? Well, good question. I, I'm reluctant to say it's a mistake, but maybe 
things that I don't agree with. <laughs> I don't think there's necessarily a right or a wrong when it comes to designing uh, and building websites. I always spend a lot of time when I'm writing copy for a landing page, making sure I'm striking the right balance of you know benefits, like using the right words and speaking to the real core benefit of the product, which when you take that too far, it can be fluffy and vague and too abstract. And right. balancing that with a very you know, deliberate talk about how a product actually works and what you're buying. And so I'd say, call it a mistake, call it a missed opportunity. Some folks skew way too much on the benefit side. And then it's really hard to grasp what is this thing? What is this thing and what, what can it do for me? And that's mm -hmm. not just words. It comes down to like, do they even show you the product or do they show you these abstract illustrations that mean nothing? which is a common pitfall, I think. And then you have on the other end of the spectrum, you have way too technical and too in the weeds and just not aspirational that doesn't really evoke any emotion. And so I think it's, yeah, it's striking that right balance is, is really hard. So yeah, I don't know that directly answers your question, but yeah, I guess, I guess yeah. it's hard to say there are mistakes. There's just like things that aren't optimal. No, but as, as someone who's done product marketing, I. I, I can give that a big plus one. I mean, that's one of the hardest, like threading that needle of like, are we actually describing the thing, but are we also like advertising the thing? Are we making the value clear? Are we making it attractive and appealing and not just like a literal, you know, definition of like what the thing is like finding that, finding that sweet spot. And I can see why you're, I can see how your survey around, you know, Hey customer, how do you describe this product to a friend or colleague? I can see where yeah. that comes in handy there. Cause that's sort of a great proxy for like when customers are getting value of this, like where's it live in their head? How do they talk about it? Cause that's exactly. probably a, a great place to start from. I'm sure. Who, who do you think out there is doing, you know, marketing sites really well right now or just marketing in general right now? Yeah, I, I was, I, I knew this was going to be a question. So I, you know, I did some homework, right? Rather I did some, thinking about it ahead of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm obviously biased because I'm in, you know, B2B SaaS and use a lot of B2B SaaS tools myself in my day-to-day -day job. So the three or the four that I picked were Figma. Not surprising that Figma has a beautiful website. You would hope yeah. they do as a, as a design company. Yeah. Uh, but I think they, you know, they do a fantastic job of heroing their product and, you know, indirectly showcasing features that you get, but using it to engage you as a, as a viewer. So that, you know, the headline has multiple people that the headline is being edited by multiple people as you're reading it. Now there's a couple of, yeah. there's, there's a number of companies that have copied that pattern now. And it's, you look at, I think I, I won't name names, but you look at other sites and you see that same pattern being used, but I'm pretty yeah. sure Figma were the first to do that. And so I think Figma, Figma is a great example. The other one is the browser company who you might not have heard of. They make a, a product called Arc, which is a new take on a web browser based on, it's a, you know, it's an app on top of Chromium. And so the browsercompany.com, check them out. Super simple homepage. It's like a abstract, the abstracted view of a web browser. And then they're just using words as you scroll to tell a story. And so they tell a great story in, you know, a few scrolls. And so that's one to check out. So a completely different approach to Figma, but effective. Um, mm -hmm. Then Zapier was one I came across recently. So Zapier did a rebrand probably about three months ago. And I was, I know, I noticed that. Yeah. I, yeah. I noticed that. Yeah. And they have a, how it works page, which is linked to off the, the homepage. If you scroll down, like, you know, 
below the fold. And again, it just does a really great job of very clearly explaining what is a quite complex product to understand and just walks you through as you scroll how the product works and what it does. And so again, it's less like aspirational. It's not trying to, you know, motivate you and, and, and tell you, you know, why you should use Zapier. It's more about just the, the bare bones of what this thing is and how it works. So I think they do a great job of that. And then the last one is actually a consumer goods company called, I had to look it up because I shared it in Slack as an example of great storytelling it, or great copy rather. It was, that's called Cometer, C-O-M-E-T-E-E-R. They make coffee. Just check it out. They're, I think their copywriting is, is excellent. They make what could be quite a dull, boring product seem really exciting. Very cool. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll check those out. We'll link to those. I love the I love the phrase you use. I think when you were talking about Figma hero, sorry if you get my dog in the background there. No the worries. phrase "heroing their product." I think that's that's awesome, and so many, and it's kind of like the the messaging convert positioning conversation we were just talking about, where it's like a lot of, and Figma does an awesome job at this with like their visuals, and it's like yeah, of course they're going to, but the right level of you know a literal you know image of what the product can do with like that level of abstraction and polish and sort of set decoration that makes it pop. Right. And I always say, you know, great product marketing, even if you're doing, you know, B2B SaaS is like a, you know, it's like putting your product on a mannequin in a storefront window. Like, yes, your product is the leather jacket, but it's your job as the product marketer to like dress it into a context that it's going to you know, be the most flattering for it. It's all the stuff around, you know, what's surrounding the products, like what's the lighting, what's the positioning, what's the, you know, like all of that. I think Figma's always done an awesome job with that because they show their product, but it's, you know, that right, that exact right level. Yeah. Like it, maybe to go back to your early question on, you know, what mistakes do people make with creating websites? If you're building, if you're selling software, show me the product like hundred percent. I, I want to see it as a buyer now, you know, strike that right balance of abstracting the UI enough so that you're not overwhelmed with everything that you would see if you're in the product itself and you're just focused on, you know, the component mm -hmm. or the part you're trying to, to show off. But I think far too many sites, and this is something that's been overdone over the years, have, they just lean on illustration and you end up looking at a homepage or a landing page for a software product and you have to scroll below the fold before you even see it because there's just this abstract illustration that really means yeah. nothing. Uh, and so I think that that's something like I, I always, I'm like, show me goddamn product. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a time and a place and like for the right kind of product is it, it can make sense to do the thing where you're, you're sort of like visually abstracting parts of the product and like, oh, there's like gray lines here instead of actual text or whatever. Like that can make yes. sense. But that's another thing I think a lot of places have really kind of over, you know, overcooked the, the, you know, the dial with, right. Where it's like, okay, this is now too abstract. I can't tell what the thing does. Absolutely. I always love yeah. when, when I see a product marketer and a designer, like sweat the details of like the demo like data inside the screenshot for me that's such yeah. an awesome little quality signal where it's like hey like the avatar photos that are in this product are like real photos of people and they're like yeah. you know well lit nice photos and like the example data is like you know 
a thing a Jira ticket might be about and not just example yeah. one, two, three. Conte contextualized to the audience. Yeah. Right, right, right. So I could, you know, product, different path because product screenshots are a sort of pet peeve passion passion area of mine. So I won't, <laughs> I won't turn this into a 20 minute tirade on that, but let's dive into, let's dive into, because I, I want to be sure to make time for this before we wrap up here. Some of the work you're going to be doing around product marketing craft there at Atlassian, because I know you touched a little bit on just like the, the demand for product marketers being stronger than ever. I know you're going to kind of be diving into this mission over there of like, how do we develop, you know, this talent in house more? Yeah. Where's, where's your head at with that? And like, what do you think is going to be the key to kind of developing, you know, product marketing talent in-house there at Atlassian? Yeah, totally. Let me give some context first. So when I rejoined Atlassian in February, I'd, I'd mentioned before that I'd been working with the team in a, or working with Atlassian as a consultant for the previous five months. And I was consulting with one of the teams within the Point A program, which is like Atlassian's internal incubator for new products. And I'd come in, I was helping the team that was working on a product that was formerly known as Team Central on branding, positioning, pricing, and packaging, all those good things as they were thinking about when the product would exit beta, become publicly available, and eventually generally available. And so when I rejoined, I ended up stepping into the role of leading PMM for that product because it was at a critical point in its life cycle. We were just ahead of Team 22, which team is Atlassian's annual global user conference. And we were going to you know, feature that product at that event and announce the public beta of it. And then GA was the next milestone, which ended up happening in early October. And so I've been in that role full time since February, and we've just started to build out a team and I'll be taking a step back and then focusing my efforts full time on craft. But I share that context because I think, you know, unintentionally I've been in the, the shoes of a PMM at Atlassian. So I got a taste for what it's like to be a PMM. Now, one thing I'll say is that Atlassian is a big company, uh, very different. You'll have a different experience depending on what team you're in, but I definitely was able to witness and observe some things and challenges that PMMs face that I will be incorporating into how I think about craft moving forward. And so what is PMM craft? PMM Craft is a function right now, it's just me, that has been established within the marketing org to amplify the impact of product marketers within Atlassian and outside of Atlassian. And so what I mean, what I mean by that is not only up-level and upskill the talent that we have today, but also, you know, share with the market that Atlassian is a fantastic place to grow and build your PMM career. And so essentially that's what my role is about and it's a function we'll continue to invest in and I'll just get it kicked off. There's been a precedent set for it. We have craft functions within other disciplines in Atlassian, like product management, Shreve Mansour, who I've worked with back in the day, he's been in Atlassian for many, many, many years now, had established the product craft at Atlassian. So we're really playing catch up on the go-to-market front here. So when I, when I think about areas of investment in craft, I've literally just had a call with our CMO, Robert, and my boss, Sean Reagan, who's been on this podcast, I guess, or asked me anything before as well, yeah. had a, had a kickoff call about, all right, now that I'm able to invest all my time on craft starting in the new year, what are we going to do? And so I think I essentially put down on, on paper, like there's three areas of investment that I think not mutually exclusive, but when they come together, really, I guess at its essence is craft. Those three things are talent. Um, so investing in the talent that we we have at Atlassian today, we have 
fantastic PMMs at Elastian today, and we want to continue to help them grow their careers, but also raising the bar for the, the next wave of PMM talent that we bring in. And so that means getting consistent and standard on how we interview folks, making sure that we're bringing them in at the right level so that they're set up for success. And they also help raise the people around them. So there's talent. The second is the second bucket is skills. So there are a number of different skills that product marketer needs. There are a core set. I've written a post on LinkedIn about what I believe to be the top traits of a PMM, a great PMM, but you know, things like storytelling, not just written, but visually, how do you tell a story with video and with GIFs and with screenshots? How do you write great, impactful copy? So there's like a whole area around investment and in, in up-leveling skills. And then the third bucket, again, all of these are interwoven and together form the concept of craft is practices. So how do we work? How do we work as product marketers? And so this will be where we start to think about how do we better our relationship with and work better with the product team, which I think is a huge area of opportunity to improve moving forward. So yeah, kind of those two things, talent, yeah. skills, and uh, practices. Yeah. That's super exciting. We'll, uh, we'll have to have you back for another conversation next year after you've gotten, gotten to put a lot of this into practice more because it's, it's really exciting that Atlassian's investing in this. I mean, coming from an organization that, you know, I think is like a top tier home for product marketers to begin with, to see you all like even further investing in that, in that talent pool and that skill set. like it's it going to be a massive level up for you guys. And yeah, for anyone out there who's in product marketing or exploring a career, like I, I definitely can't endorse enough, like the the trajectory you'll get on having some experience at Atlassian. So huge, huge endorsement and super excited to see what you guys do there. Yeah. Thanks. Well, um, We're hiring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's dive into some audience questions. We've got a, we've got a bunch. Steve's going to drop them in. I'll just read them if folks are listening on the audio afterward and We'll try to get through as many as we can here because folks have some good ones. If you have a question, you can drop it in the chat too. We'll try to get to it. So this first one, the role of PLG marketers, where to draw the line between the responsibility of PMs and marketers in PLG? It's a good question. Yeah. Let me see how I can tackle this one. I think I'll start with um, ownership of metrics. So... I think it's important that it's clear who is accountable for at the end of the day metrics as that and you know there's obviously top line revenue metrics and we all contribute to those but if i was you know in the most simplistic form thinking about what is pmm responsible for and what is pm or responsible is the wrong word accountable for knowing that these these numbers all influence each influence each other it'd be for pmm leads or Leads is probably the wrong word because there's obviously concepts of sales there, but new new signups were probably the right metric there. The number of new signups that we're bringing in, and then from a and then the conversion of those into paying customers or into active customers if you have a freemium model. So I think that's something that product marketing should be responsible for. Like you are in charge of you know creating, capturing, and converting demand for your, for a product. I think PM is responsible for making sure we're building the right things so that marketing can create, capture and convert demand, but ensuring that those things are adopted and that users are engaged. And so it's so hard to join the, draw the line. Ideally you have shared responsibility for those metrics and it's a partnership. So there's no finger pointing. Um, so it's, I'd say that that's where I would draw, draw the line. Getting more tactical, 
If you think about building a new feature, one thing that we did at Intercom, which I think is a fairly common pattern at a lot of companies, I don't think this was necessarily invented by Intercom, but we had a concept of an intermission, which was a, effectively a project brief for every feature that was built that was, I think, more than a week worth of investment. And in that document, it was usually a couple of pages long. There was an articulation of the problem that the feature or set of capabilities was intended to solve for the customer. That articulation was owned by product. So it was the PM's responsibility to clearly define what problem are we solving and how. PMM's responsibility or the, the sections of that document that PMM owned were, we called it the interstory. What's the story we will tell when we take this feature to market? Like, what will we call it? What's the you know, one sentence highlight of how to describe what it is and what and why it's a benefit to you. PMM owned that as well as any considerations around pricing and packaging. And so that was another way in which we drew like kind of clear lines of, of ownership, but, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. PMM helped shape the problem definition and PM helped shape the story. And when you do that and you're doing it in unison, like I think you end up building the right thing and selling the right thing in the right way. So I don't know whether that directly answers the question, but that's how I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, great, great context. And it's a great lesson for just like how, you know, how PLG beckons this kind of collaboration and relationship. And it's less of the, Hey, cut and dry products going to own this marketing's going to own that everyone go do their, like, it's a, it is kind of like a constant conversation and a relationship that you have to have. And it's just, yeah, you know, as those functions come together for the buyer and the product experience, they likewise have to come together in the organization. And it has to be more of a shared, more of a shared sort of relationship and kind of conversation. So yeah, great, great context. We've got one here. This is Ted from Tier Group asks, if you were starting a new B2B SaaS product, what are the what are the top five things you would do for your marketing strategy? Ted's Ted's trying to hire you or something, or I don't know. Ted's, <laughs> Ted's giving you some homework. Maybe you don't have top five, but maybe you can hit us. Maybe five. Maybe you can hit us with some of your top things. That's a hard one to answer without more context. Like I'd want to know what the product is, what market is it in, are we like who are we selling to? So I, I don't like I don't want to be a cop out, but I can't put a strategy together without additional details yeah. uh, like that. Yeah. So. What, what would I say? I would, you know, I think less is more. So I'll give you three things I think I would do like in any role that I'd start. I'd start with understanding the market landscape and figure out what position do we hold in it at the moment? And is that where we want to be? And if it is great, but usually it's not. So where do we want to be in the market? And what do we want to be known as and seen, seen as and, and known for? And then I would focus on, you know, better, like maybe re redefining and repositioning the product in the market based on that. And then, you know, tactically that comes down to how we represent ourselves on, on our marketing side and in any advertising that we might be doing. And then from there, with an understanding of, you know, what, what we're doing, what place we want to be in the market, who are we selling to? I then look at, well, how do I reach those people that we're trying to sell to? How do I get in front of them in the most efficient way possible without spending a lot of marketing dollars? So this then comes down to having an understanding of who your audience is. So in intercom speak, you know, it was like, who's hiring, who's hiring a product for the jobs that we can solve. And then you find out where those people are, like, where do they hang out online? What events do they go? You know, what, what blogs do they read? What topics are they interested in? And then, you know, you employ your, your advertising and your events and your content marketing strategy and 
make sure that you're showing up in all of those places and building that mind share and generating that awareness for your product. And then third thing, if I do three things is I'd look at the funnel and I would, you know, probably look to better understand what are the different customer journeys and the pathways into the product? What's working? What's not? Where are there opportunities to do better? Where are there opportunities to simplify? And then, you know, mm -hmm. do you do your classic like optimization of the funnel? Yeah, that's that there, there you go. There's Ted is your catch all, all purpose for a generic B2B SaaS <laughs> products. That's a general blueprint. Feel free to dive in from there. Casey from AlphaSense asks, one of the big, biggest challenges I've experienced at SaaS companies without a freemium model is really cementing the value of a high cost product within those 14 days of a free trial without overwhelming trialers with educational resources, product tours, et cetera. What are some of the most impactful marketing methods you've implemented to increase trial conversions? Great question. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the right relevant example here. Uh, I think probably Intercom would be the right example here since Loom for me was, Loom has always had a freemium uh, product um, or, or, or a free product just to get started with. And I guess at last scene in Intercom, there is, you know, there's some parallels in their, in their business models. Okay. So Atlassian, when I was there earlier on and still to the, still to this day for some of the products, there was no free version of Confluence at that point in time. There is now, and there's a cap on the number of users. I think it's 10 users on Confluence, but Confluence you would download and you get a free 30 day trial and 30 days was kind of the standard at that point. And I think with the prevalence of SaaS, that's now shifted and it's more 14 to, to the point in your question or seven days in some cases. So the trial length has got shorter as we've learned, like what is that optimal trial length to make sure that people have a sense of urgency to really evaluate the product and make a decision versus, you know, I've got 30 days, then you kind of forget about it. So I think there is something to be said about shorter trial lengths, increasing that sense of urgency, but then to your point, like how do you not overwhelm them in such a short span of time? So I think the most effective tactic that I've seen other than, you know, your standard drip feeds, not based on time, but actual based on engagement in the product and Intercom is a fantastic product to use to do that. I would say product demos. Like we used to do this at Atlassian. It's a tried and tested, tested tactic. I, I would use I think it was Citrix WebEx or something like that. Go, go to a meeting at the time, mm -hmm. Zoom didn't exist. And we would host a weekly webinar that you could sign up for on our website. And I would give you a demo of the product. I'd walk you through uh, Confluence, tell you what it is, what it can do for you, how you can use it, and then open up for live Q and A. And it was a set time every week. We did one in the morning and one in the evening to cater for the European market because I was, I was based in Sydney at the time. And when I went to Intercom, we ended up doing the same, but instead of doing live webinars, Rory, who worked at my team at the time, he ran customer engagement at Intercom for a long time. You've probably heard his voice if you've watched Intercom videos. He did pre-recorded demos of each of the jobs that we had designed Intercom to, to be hired for. And so we had a video on observe, engage, learn and support, and we made them available on demand. So I don't think this is like rocket, this isn't rocket science. I'm not telling you something you probably don't already know, but giving them as much, like show them how to use the product and chapterize it so they can dive into specific parts that are relevant to how they want to use the product. That would be one thing that I've always seen work. And I do think there is something mm -hmm. about, the, about the live component as well, getting people 
on a call, engaged and being there to answer their questions live. And so if I was to do that again, I would definitely, you know, do the live webinars. Mm -hmm. That's really great advice. And uh, yeah, to, to Casey, our question asker there, I mean, your head's in the right place with just like continuing to the biggest mistake I see is like, it's like someone signs up for the trial and marketing totally takes their foot off the gas. And like kind of a theme of this talk, it seems to be is like kind of folks overcorrecting one way or another. And maybe with this whole product led world, a lot of, a lot of teams have missed the opportunity to continue marketing during the trial period. And like you've said, it's like, yeah, maybe there's an email drip and it's time-based and it's kind of one size fits all, but doing things like, Hey, is this person getting great content? Are they getting their questions answered? Are they continuing to get inspired by the product? Are they, you know, finding ways to, you know, to learn about this. There's a sense of, you know, in a lot of products I've seen where it's like, Hey, you're in the product now. So hope, hope that goes well. But I think your, your advice on some of that, some of that activity folks can do to kind of activate folks during the trial is super important. I love that. Yeah. You, you mean, you just use the word activate something else that add would be, I think getting a good understanding, this is really hard to do of what, an activated customer or an activated user looks like is super valuable and important because then you mm -hmm. can architect your, you know, onboarding yeah. message campaign around that. And so understanding what are the key steps we need someone to take in a given time frame. Um, mm -hmm. So for the product I'm working on at the moment, Atlas, that's creating and updating a project at least twice within X days. For, and for, there are different types of users in Atlas. For some users, they're not creating projects and updating them. They are following, just yeah. getting them to follow yeah. a project, right? Yeah. And so if you understand what those key milestones are, you architect your onboarding campaign around that. And for the people that are taking the right actions at, in the right time frame, leave them alone. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Don't, don't get in their way. Like, don't spam them. But for the people that aren't, like, then intelligently re-engage them with the content that you have. Um, mm -hmm. So that, I think understanding activation and making sure that product marketing is not just saying to your point, all right, my job's done. I've got someone to sign up for the product. product mm -hmm. I, I think great product marketers care about the full funnel. Uh, 100%. And we want to make sure we're bringing in the right leads, the right, we're getting the right types of people to sign up, and then that we're actually activating them so that they retain in three months from now. 100%. And if anyone out there wants to see a great example of one of these live demos in action, head to launchnotes.com slash demo. We do them every Wednesday. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's, let's do one more here and then we'll, uh, then we'll wrap up. So we've got from Joseph, tons of work goes into positioning and finding product market fit, which you discuss in your work with jobs to be done. What are some of the signals you look for that show your strategy is working and your message is resonating or iteration yeah. is needed? Okay. I'll try and answer this one quickly. I would look at two things, traffic and how that traffic is converting. Like pretty simple stuff. Um, obviously, you know, I dive a little bit deeper and look at where is the traffic coming from. Ideally, you want to be seeing direct and organic being your two biggest channels and growing channels. If you're relying too much on paid and that's becoming a bigger and bigger portion of the traffic to your site, then your strategy is not working. And so direct and organic is where you want your traffic to be coming from, unless obviously you have specific campaigns and you're driving through those campaigns. But I would, I would look at traffic and then I'd make sure that it's converting. And so to give a you know, very recent example, 
We recently rebranded the product I'm working on. It was called Team Central. We finally gave it a, a name when we launched it at Team 22, and that's called, it's called Atlas. And we finally aligned on when someone asks, what is Atlas? We have a noun that we use. And so that noun is Atlas is a teamwork directory. And then obviously you ask, well, what is a teamwork directory? And I can talk more about that. But there was, I think, a little bit of hesitation around that, like, teamwork directory. What is that? What does that even mean? And it's a new concept and it's intentionally a new concept because we've built something that doesn't exist in the market. And so when we did that repositioning exercise, one thing I had my eye on because I was worried about whether I made the right decision was how is traffic doing and how does conversion look? And so I think you want to, as traffic grows, the best place to be is conversion holds steady, right? And if conversion is holding steady and conversion here, I mean to sign up, mm -hmm. then I think you know, that's a really strong signal that your positioning and your message, messaging is resonating with the people that you're attracting to your site. If mm -hmm. conversion tanks, right, mm -hmm. or starts to decline, which I think as traffic grows quickly, you should expect conversion to decline because you're going to have lower intent people coming to your site as your product grows. So it's not necessarily a bad thing if it starts to decline, but if it really starts to decline or fall off a cliff, that would be a signal that you're bringing in the right, wrong types of people. Um, mm -hmm or your message isn't resonating. Um, yeah. But if conversion yeah. holds steady, like, and traffic mm -hmm. grows, like, like, I think you're on the right path. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just having this conversation with someone here the other day, and it's like, uh, sometimes the case could be, or maybe you're doing very good at content marketing and you're bringing the right people into the site, but you are struggling to kind of connect the dots and bring them into product intent. And that's the muscle you need exactly. to work on. But yeah, that's, it's, it's great sort of, you know, litmus test for, you know, what you should look for. Matt, this has been a ton of fun. I could talk about these topics all day. I'm sure you could too, but I know you have a day job to get back to. So we'll let you. Well, thanks so much for joining today and, and sharing all this outstanding advice. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. And yeah, thanks as, for having me. Yeah. Where can folks, you know, folks want to find you connect, follow up. What's the, uh, what's the best way folks can connect? Best, best would be LinkedIn or Twitter. So Matt and Hodges on Twitter. And then, yeah, you'll, you'll find me on LinkedIn, Matt Alassian or Matt Lou, Matt Intercom should pop up. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. Hey, Blake here again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Launch Notes podcast. If you work on a product team, whether you're in product management, product marketing, product ops, or any other supporting function, Go check out the Launch Awesome community. Hundreds of the top product minds from companies like Google, Atlassian, Twilio, and more are in the community sharing their expertise every day. This free Slack community is a great place to connect with and learn from real product leaders, actual practitioners who are in the trenches building and launching products at some of the most exciting startups and SaaS companies around. To join, head to the link in the show notes, or just do a quick search for Launch Awesome and it'll come right up. Finally, if you're a fan of this show, don't forget to subscribe so you'll be first to know about new episodes. And of course, we'd be thrilled if you left us a review. Reviews not only help other people find the show, but also just lets us know which content you find most valuable so we can create even more of it. Thanks again for being here.